was reading this again just during, as we were worshiping. One day this week, um, I just woke up and I had Matthew 6 on my heart. And I just read, read the chapter, just med- meditating on, on Matthew 6. And of course, Matthew 6 is one of the chapters where we see um, what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. I want you to pay attention here. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. You know, I've had people ask me this question, well, if God knows already what we have need of, then why do we need to ask? And on one hand, that's a legitimate question. But on the other hand, the very simple answer is, is because he he tells us to ask. Now, you know, one day when you get to heaven, you you can ask God what was running through his mind when he cause the scripture to be written like this, but we, we, for instance, go to the book of James, and James says, you have not because you ask not. Well, why do we need to ask a God who already knows? Well, the, the, the point of Jesus speaking these words for us is to help us know and understand who our Father in heaven is. And I think sometimes we go through life and we think the things that happen to us, the things, the circumstances that we're dealing with, the trials and tribulations we may be walking through in our life, I think sometimes we, maybe not consciously, but unconsciously, subconsciously think, you know, God, did you just catch you by surprise? Or, Lord, what's going on here? And, I think Jesus is affirming to us that our Father in heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, he knows everything. There's not anything that we go through in life that he does not already know. There's not anything that you will go through in life, whether it be tomorrow or 25 years from tomorrow, that he does not already know. This is the God who created us. This is the God whom we serve. And so then Jesus speaks these very famous words that Christian and non-Christian all over the world know. I grew up in a time when every morning, I can remember being in school, and every morning there were two things that we started the morning off with. We said the Pledge of Allegiance, and we said the Lord's Prayer. Every morning. And you would have someone at the principal's office in the speaker, in the principal's office, leading us in the Pledge of Allegiance and leading us in the Lord's Prayer. I wasn't a Christian. I didn't even go to church and I knew the Lord's Prayer. I couldn't have told you where it was in the Bible. I couldn't have told you anything about it, but I knew it. Jesus says, therefore, do not be like the heathen, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. 
And what's implied there is you're going to ask him. Not that you're not going to ask him. You are going to ask him. But when you ask him, understand he already knows. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Say it with me. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our, those who have trespassed against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Now some people, amen, some people say, well, you know, that's, that's a formula for prayer. Does, Jesus didn't really mean that you just pray that prayer and then that's it. That's a formula. That's a in this manner pray. Okay, um, I don't have a problem with that. But here's, here's the simplicity I think sometimes we miss. Jesus said what he said and he meant what he said. Okay? Don't look at this prayer and say, well, now this is just a formula for prayer. We really need to enhance this thing. We really need to gin it up and we really need to get in there and uh, now you're becoming like the Gentiles. And you think because of your many words, God's going to hear you. Do you have the simple faith that says God knows before I ask? And if I did nothing else but in faith, prayed this prayer right here, straight out of the book. Do you believe, do you have the faith that that's sufficient? See, there's some people would say that's, that's not sufficient. I say we should have a simple enough faith in God to say, you know what? If I know nothing else but to pray that prayer right there, and I prayed in faith, God knows before I ever ask what I need. And he is the meter of my needs. It's not how well I can pray. It's not how many words I can pray. It's not how I can embellish the prayer. It's not coming up with a, using this as a formula and then going point by point and touching all the points of the formula. Now God's going to hear me. No, that's not what Jesus said. And I guess what I'm saying to you, and this is my rabbit trail, what I'm saying is, Don't complicate your faith more than it needs to be. Just trust Him. Trust that He already knows what you need. Do you know that He knows before you do? Some of us are facing circumstances, some of you that we're praying for. Cindy, He knew long before you or any doctor, He knew. He knew. Conway's not here today because tomorrow he's going to have his prostate removed because it has cancer in it. Long before he discovered or a doctor or a scan or anything discovered that his prostate had cancer, I submit to you before he was even created and walked on this earth, God knew he would come to this point in time in his life. The Father in heaven knows exactly what he needs. The Father in heaven knows exactly what you need. And here's my encouragement to you. Trust Him. Don't complicate your faith. Trust in the God of heaven, the God of creation. Trust that what Jesus said, Jesus meant. Don't complicate it. Don't 
Don't try to think that by our many words and by embellishing our prayers, I've had people say, well, you know, Pastor Jeff, I can't pray like you pray. Like what? Because I can talk a lot? Now, come on, let's be honest. I mean, the food gets cold usually when I pray. You think, you think your food's better off because it got cold because I prayed too long? No, it's not my long prayer that does anything. As a matter of fact, one of my prayers is, God, help me simplify. Because it doesn't matter whether my prayer is three words or 33 words or 330 words. The point is, who am I calling upon and do I know and do I trust He already knows what the question is, what the problem is, and he's already got the solution. Do I trust that? Jesus made it very simple here. Don't complicate it. Have simple faith. This is why Jesus said, you must become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Childlike faith. Have you ever noticed something about children? They don't need a big, long explanation. Little kids... They don't need a big, long explanation. It's pretty simple for them. It's usually either yes or no. iPhone? iPhone? No. iPhone? iPhone? Yes. They understand that. Now, the no, they might not like. But they understand. Don't complicate your faith. Whatever you're walking through today, trust Him and know that He already knows. And go to him, look at that prayer, study that prayer, and understand what Jesus is communicating to us. He says, this is who your father is. This is the one who holds the answer to what he already knows that you need before you ask. So trust him. Trust him that he knows how to bring the answer in his way, in his time. Ecclesiastes says he makes all things beautiful in his time. Amen. Let's go to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. We're on the last half of Titus, and we're going to finish Titus today. All right, this is a very short little letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Titus was one of Paul's spiritual sons. Matter of fact, in the beginning of this letter, he He refers to Titus as a true son in the faith. A true son in our common faith is actually what Paul says. And so as we come to the conclusion of this letter, uh, we see that what Paul has done here, Paul has commanded Titus across the spectrum of the gospel. He's commanded him to do certain things. And I, I really, speaking of simplicity, one of the, I think one of the simplest ways we can understand what Paul is declaring to Titus. If we go to, hold your place there in Titus and turn back with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Let's look at Matthew chapter 28, what we commonly refer to as the Great Commission. Because the reality is this, Paul is really commanding Titus to fulfill the great commission that Jesus left the church. 
This is really what Paul is, is saying here in this brief letter. Let's read the words of Jesus as he is getting ready to ascend to the Father. And, and this, is the, this is what he left the church with. This is the commission or the commandment. We call it the Great Commission, but it's also a commandment. This is not an option for us. Jesus is commanding us to do this. And really and truly, we can boil everything down to, you know, as human beings, we, we, like, to, we like to ask these questions and oftentimes we say, I just want to know what my purpose is here. You know, I want to find out what my purpose is. Well, I'm going to tell you, this is your purpose. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a, a disciple of Christ, if you're a believer, this is your purpose. Look no further. This is it. See, here again, we want to complicate things. And, and really, what God has called us to is not really complicated. I didn't say it was easy. I said it's not complicated. Just because it's not complicated doesn't mean it's easy. Right? And so, here's what Jesus commands us as believers, as those who confess to be his disciples. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority. That right there is so powerful. Not some authority, not most authority. All authority. Is there anyone, is there anything that is not under the authority of Jesus Christ? The answer is no. What about the devil? He is absolutely under the authority of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. The devil is not some free agent roaming around out there doing what he wants to do when he wants to do it. He is under the authority of God Almighty. How do you know that, Pastor Jeff? Just go back to the book of Job. He couldn't lay a finger on Job until God says, okay, go for it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That pretty well covers it, doesn't it? Is there any place is outside of the realm of Jesus' authority? No. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So be it. Do you see a qualification in this commandment? Does it say, pastors, go therefore? No. Does it say, only apostles, go therefore? No. Does it say, only evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers, and apostles, go therefore? No. It's a general, go therefore. Who's he talking to? He's talking to... Anyone that is his disciple. Are you his disciple today? Are you? Do you profess to be a follower of Jesus? If you do, 
this commandment is your commandment. If you've been wondering what your purpose is in life, don't look any further than this right here. This is what Jesus has purposed, not just for you, but for all of us. That's it. Is it really that simple, Pastor Jeff? Yes, it's that simple. It's it's not easy, but it is that simple. So when we come to the book of Titus, this little letter that Paul wrote to his spiritual son, this is really what Paul is commanding Titus to do. Paul understood very well what Jesus spoke. He understood the Great Commission. He understood the commandment. How do we know? Because Paul lived it. Because Paul spent the rest of his life until he was martyred for his faith, making disciples, baptizing and teaching all men. All things that Jesus commanded. Paul spent his life from the day that he was knocked off of his horse or his donkey on on that road to Damascus, he spent the rest of his life fulfilling the Great Commission. Every letter he writes in the New Testament is centered, it's central to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is central to everything Paul wrote, everything Paul did, because Christ is central to everything in Scripture, Old and New Testament. And this is what God in Christ has commanded us not only to do, but to be. So when we come to this letter, as we come to the conclusion of it, this is what we need to understand, that basically Paul is writing this letter to Titus, and he's saying, Titus, fulfill what Jesus has commanded us to do. Titus, you're a pastor He happened to be a pastor on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. And Titus was commanded by Paul to to set these things in order in the church, to, to do these things that he's commanding so that the Great Commission would be fulfilled. And and all of this comes from a foundation of the faith. We go back to the very, go back to the very beginning of this little letter in chapter 1. In verse 1, Paul, a slave of God, that word bondservant, that's what it means. It means slave. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. Not just any faith. Listen, we're not called to believe in anything that sounds good to us. We're not called to believe in anything that seems convenient to us. We're not called to pick from this and this and this and get a hodgepodge of all the best of all the religions and now we're going we're gonna to develop our own faith and this is what I'm going to have faith in. No, he didn't say, he said the faith of God's elect. In other words, there is one faith. And, and he's saying this foundation that he's laying here is a foundation of the faith of God's elect. And he commands Titus, as we've gone through this little letter, He commands Titus to set all things in order and to appoint elders in every city. Why? So that specific things can be carried out. Speak 
the things that are proper, he says, for sound doctrine. He didn't say speak the things that are popular to the people that you're called to. He said speak the things that are for sound doctrine, that are profitable, that are proper for sound doctrine, whether they're popular or not. He said speak the proper thing, not the popular thing, for sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? It is the doctrine that takes us back to, that affirms, that points us to the faith. Not any faith, the faith. All paths do not lead to God. Jesus said, I am the way, not a or one of many ways. I am the way. There is one faith that will put you on that way. Paul says, Titus, speak the things proper for sound doctrine. Set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. He said, exhort a lifestyle of discipleship. Tell the older men to exhort the younger men. Tell the older women to exhort the younger women. In other words, tell the disciples to be making disciples. If you're not making disciples, we need to examine our status as a disciple because disciples make disciples. Now, here's the thing. This is not something that's often taught. A lot of our church in America has become, really, you could just go to Barnes & Nobles and and go to the self-help section of the bookstore and just buy a bunch of books And you wouldn't get much different than what we get in a lot of churches in America. But here is the message. Listen, the message that we're commanded to preach and to teach. This is what Paul is commanding Titus. Titus, this is what you're to speak. This is what you're to do. You are to exhort, to encourage, to provoke the disciples to be making disciples. Tell those older men to be training up the younger men. Tell those older women to be training up the younger women. He's making it very practical. You can just hear as Titus is reading this letter, Paul is anticipating some of his questions. Well, how am I going to do this? Look, get the older guys and train up the younger guys. Encourage fathers to raise up their sons and and their daughters and mothers to, to do this. Exhort, he says, I, I'm commanding you to exhort a lifestyle of discipleship and disciple making because this is what Jesus commissioned every believer to do. Not just the pastor or the apostle, but every believer. He commanded Titus to speak these things. What? Everything he just, Paul lays it out pretty strong and he says, speak these things, Titus exhort and rebuke with all authority. Where does that authority come from and where does it go back to? We go back to the Great Commission. Jesus said what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. When Paul says, Titus, don't speak what's popular, speak what's proper. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. You can just hear Titus going, yeah, I'm on this island by myself. You're off somewhere else. What, what, what happens when they get unhappy with me? He says, listen, your authority doesn't come from 
those people. Your authority, Titus, doesn't even come from me. Your authority ultimately comes from who? From Jesus Christ, to whom all authority has been given. So you speak these things with all authority. Let no one despise you or let no one disregard you. Oh, that Titus, he's a nut, man. Don't pay attention to what he... uh, don't, Don't let them disregard you. Why? Not because of who Titus is. Not even because of who Paul is, but because of who Christ is. Because what Titus was commanded to speak was not just the words of the Apostle Paul. What Titus was commanded to speak was the very word of God. You realize Titus didn't have a New Testament. He didn't have the letter... He had a letter that he was reading, but, but he didn't have all of these other... He didn't have what we commonly refer to as the New Testament. You know what he had? He had the Old Testament Scriptures. And the Old Testament Scriptures spoke of Christ. Christ was revealed through the Old Testament. He was commanded to speak with the very authority of the Word of God. And if they disregarded Titus, what they were really doing was disregarding the word of God. And he says, don't let, Paul says to him, let no one disregard you. Remind them, he commands Titus, remind them of and constantly affirm. Remind them and constantly affirm to them what? The gospel of the grace of God. This is what we looked at last week in the first half of Titus chapter 3. When Titus 3 begins with Paul writing these words, remind them. Remind them what? Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Remind them to obey. Remind them. Remember we said Paul basically laid it out and he told Titus, he said, remind them who they are to be. Remind them who they once were. And remind them how they were changed. We find these elements in in the first part of Titus chapter 3. Paul reminds them who they are to be. What the word of God declares them. Who they are to be. He said remind them who they once were. Because you'll never understand who you're to be if you don't understand who you once were. You'll never understand what it means to be light in the Lord if you don't first understand You once were darkness. This is what Paul writes to the Ephesians. You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I had a 12-year-old come to me last week. and She had a very simple but profound question. Why did God make evil? You know, sometimes we discount kids. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, oh, they're only 12, oh, they're only 8, oh, they're only 4. They don't really know what's going on. Oh, don't you do that to your kids. Don't you do that to any kids. Because they know a whole lot more than you give them credit for. And this is one of the problems in our culture today. We have discounted, we have segregated, we've relegated kids over there and says, well, they really can't understand what we're talking about. So we stick them over in another building. We put them in another room, and we don't let them be a part of our conversations, and they need to be. Because they understand, they have questions that you probably can't even imagine that they have at their 
young ages. And if we wait till they're 18 or 19 year, years old to try to teach them and try to convince them what to believe is true, you, you, it's too late. They may come to the truth, but it's not going to be because you convince them. You should have been dealing with that about 16 years, 17 years, 18 years early. If they're 18, you should have been dealing with that about 18 years earlier. Even the secular psychiatrist will tell us, I mean, this has been fact for years, that by the time a kid's about four to six years old, their personality's pretty well set. Don't wait till they're 16 to try to get them straightened out. Because then all you're going to have is a bunch of conflict in your home. And don't, when they're just little, oh, well, you know, they're just little, you know, they'll, they'll figure it out. No, they won't figure it out, mom or dad. You're put there to figure it out for them, to train them. That's like saying, I'm going to plant this tree, and I'm, I'm expecting it to grow straight, but I'm not going to help it out. Mm-mm. And so... Paul is commanding Timothy. He says, hey, remind them of and constantly affirm. We need to be constantly affirmed in this, in the grace of God, the gospel of grace. He said, remind them, but also constantly affirm. Paul writes in another letter, he says, for me to write the same thing to you, he said, though it might be kind of repetitive, and I know you guys are probably tired of hearing this, but it's profitable because... You need to hear it. Why did Paul know that they needed to hear it? Because though they had heard it many times, they were not walking it out. Look at, look at verse 16 of, cha- of chapter 1 in Titus. This is an example of people who have heard the truth but are not walking out the truth. And this is why they need to, as they profess to be believers, they need to be they need to have this truth constantly affirmed to them. Because here's what happened. They profess to know God, but in, their, but in their works, they profess. In other words, with their mouth, they confess or profess to know him. But in their works, they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Those, they profess the right thing, but they're not walking out what they profess to be true. Paul understood this is human nature. This is our fallen nature. You can't just... That's like telling someone who's never ridden a bicycle before, right? Well, here's how you do it. I'm going to show you one time, and now you go, and you'll be proficient at it. No? How many of you all remember learning how to ride a bike? Did anybody ever fall... Was I the only one that ever fell down trying to learn to ride a bike? I remember, I still have scars on my knees from where I fell on the asphalt. We had real rough asphalt in front of my house. I'd get on that thing and fall down. Get on and fall down. And, you know, I remember my dad out there, and he said, get, get it back on it. You know, he'd run down the road, and he'd push me off. And finally, I got it, you know. So we need to be constantly affirmed in these things. So here's what he's commanding Titus. And this all comes from what Christ has commanded every believer 
to do. This is the gospel. The Great Commission is, is centered in the gospel. The Great Commission is about the gospel. And the gospel is about the Great Commission. If we're not going to tell people and teach people the good news, what's the point of having good news? See, this goes back to who God is versus who we are. God didn't keep the good news secret. He didn't keep Jesus secret. Jesus came openly. Remember, we looked at this, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Jesus didn't come in secret. When he came, he did everything he did. He did it openly and publicly. When he began his earthly ministry, his last three and a half years on earth, man, he, 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 he was out there. He was out there so much that in the end, they killed him because he was too out there. All right, let's look in verse 9. Verse 9, but avoid. So let's get the context here. Let's read verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. For they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man, a divisive man, after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. All right, let's stop right there. All right, so we see in verse 9, Paul commands Titus to do this, to avoid foolish disputes. About what? Foolish disputes about genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. All of those things had to do with the law. Avoid foolish disputes about the law, about how we're saved. Are we saved by the works, by the deeds of the law? Are we saved by our ancestry? Paul says, avoid these foolish disputes because they are unprofitable and useless. We're to avoid foolish disputes about the law because we are not saved by the deeds of the law, nor because we are the physical descendants of someone. The Jews thought, hey, we're descendants of Abraham, so we're okay. Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. Sorry. Paul says, you are not Israel who are the descendants of Abraham. You are Israel who are of faith. He says that in Romans chapter 9. In Galatians, he writes, if you are in Christ, you are all descendants of Abraham. So it's not based on our physical ancestry. It's based on faith. So avoid foolish disputes about how we're saved. We're, listen, we're saved by conversion, not by convincing. You know you're not saved today because someone convinced you to be saved. You're saved today because you were converted. And that conversion wasn't through the power of man's arguments. That conversion was by the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. We are saved by conversion, not by convincing. We're saved by grace through faith, by the power of God's gospel, not by the power of man's argument. 
I know sometimes we want to think that we can argue people, convince people into the kingdom, but it doesn't happen that way. That is contrary to what the Scripture declares. Your salvation happened because of a conversion that took place by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the gospel does. Now, we are commanded to preach the gospel and to teach the gospel, but you're not going to get saved because I talked you into it. And if anyone tries to talk you into it and you get saved because you were talked into it, you better, you better really examine your salvation. Because if you just had an emotional moment and you did something because you were emotionally convinced to do it, the test of that's going to come about in time. This is why I say, you know, people say, well, you know, they were saved, but they, well, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Maybe someone emotionally convinced them to do something that, that, that really wasn't what the Holy Spirit did. Because our salvation is not about being convinced, it's about being converted. And that's by the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, not by the power of man's argument. Ongoing disputes, ongoing disputes with heretics are foolish, unprofitable, and useless. We must use our time wisely Why? Because there are too many disciples waiting to be made. We're commanded to make disciples. If someone does not want Jesus, it's not your responsibility to force feed them with Jesus. If they don't want it, you can't make them take it. And just because they say it, because they want to get rid of you or be done with you, that doesn't mean they actually experienced a conversion. So avoid foolish disputes about the law, for they're unprofitable and useless. He commands Titus to reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. The word here for divisive is a Greek word. It's our word heretic. This could very easily say reject a heretic. This isn't just, well, I just can't get along with Pastor Jeff, you know, he's no, this, this word divisive, a divisive man, this is not your, the guy in the cubicle next to you at work who's just unreasonable and you can't seem to, well, he's just divisive. No, this word divisive means something very specific. Reject a heretic. A schismatic individual. This is someone who does not believe the truth. They have rejected the truth of the gospel. They're living a life opposed to the gospel. They're not just sitting there wondering, well, should I believe in Christ or should I not? No, listen, they, they're a heretic. This is the word heretic. After the first or second admonition. So we can't look at a heretic. We can't look at the guy who's a, uh, you know, who's a militant Hindu or a mis- militant Islamist. And say, well, you know, he's an Islamist and he's militant about his faith, so I just reject him. Have you, have you presented the gospel to him? Do you know whether he's had the gospel presented to him? If, if you have a heretic and, and you've gone to him once or twice and he's rejected the truth, what does Paul say? Reject him. Why? You reject him just like he rejected the truth. Now, see, in our Western politically correct American churches, that just sounds too harsh. Oh, well, we don't want to reject anybody. 
Well, so what are we going to do? We're just going to sit there and argue with him, dispute with him. Yeah, I'm going to win him to the kingdom. No, you're not going to win him to the kingdom. So what you're trying to do is through the power of convincing, get him to say what you want him to say. And he's not, he's not won by your convincing. He's won by the Spirit of God converting his dark soul into light in the Lord. So reject a heretic after the first or second admonition. This is a person who rejects the truth of Scripture, preferring to choose for himself or herself what she or he is to believe. The context can be in or it can be out of the church. Paul is not naive. He understands that there were people in the church who were not really believers, who held heretical beliefs. But they, they fellowshiped, they were if you will, in covenant with the believers. Paul says those people that are heretics who will not embrace the truth, reject them after the first or second admonition. Now, you might not like what the Scripture says, but this is what the Scripture says. The heretic is to be rejected only after he or she is admonished. That means we're to call attention to the heretical beliefs Rebuke them and warn them of the dangers. In other words, speak the truth in love. But if they reject the truth, then the loving thing is not to continue trying to convince them through the power of your words. The loving thing and the thing God has commanded us to do is to go on and keep making disciples. Not everybody's going to want to be a disciple of Jesus. We know that because there's going to be people in hell because Jesus teaches us that. The Scripture's full of that. Remember, there's too many disciples waiting to be made. And this is what Paul is telling Titus. Don't spend all of your time dealing with the heretics. Don't continue to argue with the heretic. Admonish him once or twice, then reject him as he has rejected the truth. That just means we're not going to give place to these endless disputes. It's unprofitable. And it's useless. So avoid foolish disputes. Reject a heretic after the first or second admonition. He commands Titus, knowing, no, listen, know that such a person, this heretic, is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Know that this person is warped. That word warped literally means twisted. Guys ever build anything? You ever gone to the lumber store and all you can find are warped boards? You ever tried to build a wall that's straight and level with a warped board? You can't do it. So what do you do when you go to the lumber store and you got to build a wall and you want that wall to be true? Do you buy all the warped boards or do you buy all the straight boards? That word, this is what this word warp means. It's twisted. This heretic, people who have, this man who has rejected the truth, he is twisted and sinning. Paul doesn't just say he's twisted and deceived. He said he's sinning and he's self-condemned. Peter clues us in. Second Peter says they willfully, they willfully forget. That's not like I forgot where I put my car keys. You, you forgot where you put your car keys. Okay, you forgot. This is different. They willfully forget. 
that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. In other words, they choose to reject that. They didn't just forget, oh gosh, I forgot. God created everything. I forgot that. I wish you'd have reminded me. No, they, Peter says they willfully forget. This is who Titus is commanded to, to deal with in a certain... He says, understand Titus who the heretic is. He is warped, he's twisted in his thinking, in his beliefs. And he is sinning, being self-condemned. He's condemned himself by what he has willfully forgot. So let's, let's read on. He says, when I send Artemis, when I send Artemis to you, Artychus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer, wow, See, there's hope for lawyers even. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. And let, look at verse 14, and let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. So he says, let our people learn these three things. Let our people learn to maintain good works. Or let our people learn to maintain a lifestyle marked by steadfast faithfulness. It's not what you do one time. It's what you consistently do. See, we often look at our failures and we focus on our failures and we forget the rest because we're so focused on our failure. Really, the scripture tells the believer to do the opposite. Don't focus on your failures. Focus on what your life is to be over the course, over the long haul. If you're running a race, you may stumble and fall down. No big deal. Get back up and keep running. But if you stumble and fall and you sit there and you're going, I can't believe I fell down. I can't believe I stumbled. And you sit there and you cry about it and you don't do anything. You don't just simply get back up and keep going. Well, now that's a problem. So we don't focus on when we cross the finish line the fact that I stumbled. The important thing is I'm going to cross the finish line. So learn to maintain good works. Learn a lifestyle marked by steadfast faithfulness. If you stumble, get back up. If you fall down, just get back up. Learn consistency, steadfastness, and endurance in good works. He says, learn to meet urgent needs. Or, we could say it like this, learn to live a lifestyle marked by selfless sacrifice. Learn to live sacrificially, not only in meeting urgent needs, but learn to live sacrificially in all things. Whether you have a need or not. When you give. When you give your time, when you give your treasure, when you give your talent. Learn to live sacrificially. Learn to meet urgent needs. Even Paul mentions his personal need for assistance here in this letter and so many of the other ones. Third thing is, he says, learn to be faithful or learn to be fruitful. He said, not, look what he says. He uses the negative here. Let our people learn that they may not be unfruitful. He uses the negative, but what he's saying is that, my, that our people would learn to be fruitful. Now, 
Galatians 5.22 lists the fruit, not the fruits, the fruit. It's singular. There's not a bunch of different fruits. Well, you know, I've got, I've got love. I've got, I got, you know, three out of the uh, seven, three out of the nine here. I've I, I got some of them. I've got most of them. I just don't have all. No. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That is the fruit of the Spirit. All those, th- that, that's what, that's the characteristic of that fruit. That's like taking that apple off the tree and saying, oh, it's sweet, it's tart, it's juicy. It's, it's not just one of, it's good fruit is all of those things, right? This is what the Spirit wants to produce in us. So the fruit of the Spirit is not something we learn The fruit of the Spirit is what is produced in our life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we learn to be fruitful? What we're really learning here, remember, it's a lifestyle of fruitfulness. It's a lifestyle marked by the fruit of the Spirit. So it's it's not that we're learning how to make the fruit of the Spirit Come forth. The fruit of the Spirit is not something we learn, but rather something produced by the Spirit of God in us. It's how we consistently walk according to the Spirit. So Paul says, if you've received the Spirit, so walk in the Spirit. It's how we consistently walk in the Spirit, or how we consistently show forth the Spirit's fruit that we're learning. We're learning how to show the fruit that the Spirit produces. How do you learn to love? Y'all, what's that movie where Morgan Freeman is God? Remember in that scene in the restaurant? I can't remember what his name tag. Yeah, he's got the name. I can't remember. I just remember the name tag. Remember, Remember what his name tag said? Huh? Do you remember? I don't either. It was real cute. See, now you need to go watch the movie and pay attention to his name tag when, when Morgan Freeman is the waiter in the restaurant. And he says, when you want to learn patience, he said, when you pray for patience, what does God do? He gives you an opportunity to be patient. We all want the fruit of the Spirit in our life, right? Love, joy, peace, love. Well, listen, how... Is that love going to be manifest? How is God going to give you an opportunity to manifest his fruit, to show forth his fruit? Here's what Jesus said. It's easy to love those who love you. It's easy to be kind to those who are kind to you. But I say, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and despitefully use you. Can you pray for your enemies? Can you pray for those people that that use you, that curse you. This is how we learn. This is how we learn to live a life that's not unfruitful, that is fruitful. And so, what's God going to do? He's going to give us an opportunity to love the unlovable. When we say, God, I need more patience, you know what He's going to do? He's going to give you an opportunity to either exercise patience or let your impatience be manifest. And if your impatience is manifest, it's simply God allowing you to see what you need to learn. 
Because if the Spirit of God is in you, patience is there, you just need to learn how to let it show forth. It's not that you don't have patience, because if you have the Spirit of God, you've got patience in there. You just need to let it be manifest. You need to learn how to let it come forth. So learn to be fruitful. Learn a lifestyle marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And even when we talk about, remember we talked about heretics, how you deal with heretics. It sounded kind of cruel. This means we continue to love and pray even for the heretics. We just don't continue to spend our valuable time disputing with them as they continue to reject the truth. But what if that heretic that lives next door to you, that atheist that, uh, that just despises your Christianity, what happens if he has an urgent need? Oh, maybe God just gave you an opportunity to love him. And maybe it's love that he needs more than your arguments as to why he should or should not believe what he believes. These characteristics should mark the lifestyle of the believer, but it should also mark the lifestyle of the Christian community. We're not just believers individually. We are a community of believers. We are the Christian community. The world is watching how we live with one another. The world is watching how we interact with one another. And so these are characteristics that should mark not just the believer personally, but it should mark the Christian community as a whole. And then Paul ends this letter as he does with so many. Again, a reminder. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace, grace be with you all. Amen. Grace be with you all. Without the grace of God, we have nothing. We can do nothing. It is only by His grace that we are able. Period. Able to be or to do anything. It is only by His grace. Amen. Let's all stand. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that you would challenge us, challenge us with the scripture. Father, I pray that you would not allow us to be apathetic believers. Lord, you have commanded and commissioned us to do something very specific. It's not complicated, but it's very specific. To be disciples and to make disciples. Disciples make disciples. Lord, if we know nothing else, Lord, we should be able to go out and share the love of Christ. We should be able to go out and testify of God's love in our own life. Of how God changed us and transformed us if we're struggling with that transformation, if we're struggling with issues in our life and our fruit is not very obvious, 
Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, deal with us. Lord, if we need to be rebuked, then so let us be rebuked. If we need to be encouraged, God, then so let us be encouraged. Your word will do all of that and more. Father, we pray today for your church. You would work by your spirit to cause us to be people who have learned to maintain good works, who have learned to meet urgent needs, who have learned to live lifestyles that demonstrate and manifest the fruit of God's Spirit. Lord, I pray specifically for those who have needs here today. Lord, I lift up Cindy to you. Lord, as she has begun her treatment this past Friday, Lord, we thank you that she has come here today and she, Lord, is standing tall and looking good. She looks strong. She's full of the joy of the Lord. And Father, we just pray that you would continue to pour your grace upon her life and upon Black's life and upon that family, that you would continue to strengthen her by your mighty hand. Father, you would continue to give her wisdom. We thank you for your grace, your abundant grace in her life. Father, we lift up Conway to you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for a successful surgery tomorrow. We thank you that your grace is upon him. Your grace is sufficient. Lead and guide the hands of those surgeons. And we thank you, Lord, for a good report of healing. Father, so many are struggling and walking through trying times right now. Lord, for all those here who are dealing with trying situations, who feel like they're walking through the valley of shadow, who feel like, God, they're walking through fire and water, and they're wondering whether the fire will consume them or the water will overtake them. Lord, we are encouraged by your word that declares, though I walk through the waters, they shall not overtake me. Though I walk through the fire, I shall not be burned. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, you are there with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You are leading us to a higher place, a greater place. Even in the presence of our enemies, God, you have prepared a table. So, Father, I pray today that you would give hope to your people, that you would cause us to realize, Lord, as we have said before, hope sometimes is unseen, but it is never uncertain. Our hope is in Christ. It is certain. It is certain. And we thank you for that. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.